from KQED. To learn the story of a town, you talk to the people that make it up. What's a town, after all, but the people who live in it, their history and memory and collective experience? In almost every town, there are those people, the ones that everyone knows about. I had heard of Iris. Iris is like bigger than life, so I had heard about her before I had met her. In a small suburb like Antioch, with about 113,000 people and a rich history, the name of one couple, especially one half of that couple, keeps coming up. Iris is a major player, but very progressive. Talking with the county supervisor. Supervisor Federal Glover. Anytime anyone mentions local social service programs. Yeah, I don't know if you heard, you know, remember, you met the Archuletas. The Archuletas were Very, very cool. They've got this initiative going on, health and wellness uh, initiative. Got some big players involved in that. Keith and Iris Archuleta moved to Antioch in the late 90s. It was during a period of time when racial bias against African Americans was very real. Like some residents broke watermelons on the lawns of their new black neighbors kind of real. The N-word spray painted on a garage door kind of real. But Iris, Iris saw an opportunity, a town in need of healing, a town that would become part of her own journey to let go of the ghosts of hate. Iris has created friendships with people who have sometimes found themselves divided. Local law enforcement. My name's uh, Jim Hyde. I'm a retired uh, police chief in the city of Antioch. You know, she's a force of nature. Don't get in her way. On the other side, civil rights leaders. Iris Archuleta, who I give credit to for, for actually helping to change me. In the past 20 years, the city of Antioch has changed from a mostly white working-class suburb to an increasingly diverse community. And that change has brought growing pains. Welcome to American Suburb. I'm Sandhya Dirks. And this is Chapter 5, How to Change Your Mind. Over the past year, I've sat down for a series of long conversations with Iris Archuleta because so many people mention her, And because Antioch is a place she so clearly loves, it's a part of her. Even though there have been racial tensions out here, Iris wants me to know that's only one small sliver of the story. I just found out that um, that it wasn't, oh, there's just all these racist people that don't want you there, um, just as it wasn't all these black people are moving out there and starting these problems in this peaceful town. I found that neither of those were true. It was much more complicated. And I found that Antioch is an amazing place to live. I love living um, here. Um, I know I've you met, do. Yeah, and I've <laughs> met amazing people. And um, it's, it's, it's very complicated. And it is um, a tale that needs to be told correctly. Because for Iris... The story of Antioch isn't about a racist town pushing back against newcomers. For her, it's a story of redemption and resilience, and the ability for people to change. I learned in Antioch that because people do stupid stuff, it doesn't mean that they're evil. It means that they're fearful. Fear of the other, Iris says, is something you can conquer. She knows this because she's done it in her own life. Iris is sitting in the grand dining room of the Lone Tree Golf Club. She's with city council member Monica Wilson. They're drinking coffee and chatting. People she knows walk past, stopping by for a hug and hello. (laughs) Iris is a whirlwind of words, and when she talks, her hands take the place of punctuation. Iris grew up in San Francisco, in the Haight-Ashbury. My great-grandmother owned the, the Victorian right across from the panhandle that we lived in, and she owned the one next door. I did not grow up poor. 
um, did not grow up poor at all, but grew up in a family where my great-grandmother had come from the South and had experienced racism in a way that I never have, and that pain carried. Um, I didn't learn inclusion um, as a kid, quite the contrary. There is one story that Iris always tells about the way in which she was taught from a young age to discriminate. And I remember my grandmother hurting my feelings. My best friend was a little white girl and her, her mother gave me a kitten and it was scratching me. And so I asked her, she would walk me home with the kitten and she walked home the kitten. I get in the house and I'm telling my grandmother, yeah, this is my friend, this is my friend, look at my cat. And she's, she leaves, she says, don't you ever bring that poor ass white trash in my house again. And so, Racism works both ways. Iris's mother was a Black Panther. For a while, she says she herself was a pantherette. She remembers occupying her middle school gym, dressed in all black. I grew up um, believing what my grandmother told me, that as an African-American woman, um, that African-Americans, that we were, we were better than these folks. You know, I, I grew up with the rhetoric um, that my mom and I, and this wasn't Panther rhetoric, this was my mom's own unique um, variety of rhetoric, which said that white people were not human, white people were this, that, and the other. I don't like it, but I have a unique understanding of what happens when a child grows up in a household being fed a story about another group, how that gets internalized and how you have to have your own adventure, how you have to have your own path of neutralizing that. Iris's path to inclusion, to neutralizing her own racism, has in many ways been shaped by what's happened to her here in Antioch. Iris was part of an early wave of middle and upper middle class African Americans who came out here in the late 90s from Bay Area cities. Prices in San Francisco, even though I had been there since 1955, just were cost prohibitive. But she's adamant that characterizing this as displacement, as somehow just a side effect of gentrification, diminishes the real story of black migration out here. It was also not true that the majority of us came out here because we were displaced. Um, we are not little animals, we have choice. Her husband and her were looking to move, somewhere they could get a bigger house, somewhere quieter, somewhere with a close-knit community. They were thinking about going back south until a chance conversation with a coworker changed that. A woman I'll never forget, her name was Yvonne. She said, Iris, I know you're looking for a house. She said, we just bought a house in this place called Antioch. And so she said, and there's these new developments. And so she showed me the brochure. Yvonne was African-American and, um, and I had another friend. Um, he happened to be a white guy and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this house and I'm, and I'm looking at the floor plan and it was a brand new development. And I was like, I love this. And he's like, you don't wanna go out there. <laughs> I'm like, why do I not wanna go out there? He was very worried um, for us um, when we first moved out here. The racial bias about um, African Americans moving into the area was very, very real. And um, he didn't want me to have to deal with that. But she did have to deal with it shortly after she arrived. She remembers one day shopping at an antique store, just browsing like you do. And I remember being in there and hearing this white woman. She walked by me and rolled her eyes and she walked up to the clerk. And the clerk, now here I am. Okay, here I am, a business owner. 
you know, law degree, the whole bit. I'm walking around, I'm being friendly, and I hear the clerk say, that's why we're moving, those niggers are moving in here, and that's why we're moving. A lot of African-American newcomers say they experience stuff like this. Comments, whispers, racial epithets. Iris is upset with me. She's upset with American Suburb. She thinks in telling the story of black people and people of color coming out to Antioch and facing resistance, we've just been telling one side of the story, one that ignores her experience. I am human, and so absolutely, um, the few situations where, like I said, the woman used the N-word or I'd get the funny stares and the whole bit, of course, that would make me angry. And because I'm human, of course I would want to default to the, well, that's how these people are. But I'm going to tell you something. I learned something. Iris says she learned that people were hurting out here. Longtime residents had seen the town's fortunes fall with the downsizing of steel jobs on the waterfront. The new, fairly affluent black families, like Iris's moved in, who appeared to be doing just fine. Still, everyone was talking about how to help the newcomers, primarily people of color. If I were a person who had lived here all those years, do you know what I would have been saying? The same thing they were saying. How the heck you gonna put resources into those people? I've been here all this time. What about my need? It's what just happened in our country. Iris has this ability to put herself in other people's shoes. Maybe one of the reasons she can do this is the work she does. She runs a consultancy company with her husband. They do community building, establishing private, public, nonprofit partnerships. That's her job. She volunteers her expertise to the city of Antioch for free. She says that's because she loves this town. She loves the people. To understand Iris's belief in the power of people to transform, it helps to know a little bit about her own transformation. My mom blamed me for her for my birth because she had me when she was a teenager. I dropped out of school when I was 17 years old, went out on my own, moved to Oakland, got my own place, moved back to San Francisco, back and forth. I was working, but I was also functional because I was depressed. So alcoholism, drugs, the whole bit. I used to have to drink a, 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 a pint of brandy to get to sleep at night and woke up every morning snorting a gram of cocaine and was functional, was working the whole bit, but just depressed, just life out of control. One Easter Sunday, Iris finally gave in to the pleas of her little cousin to join the family at church. The family called Iris Peaches. Auntie Peaches, please come to church, please come to church. And I remember one Easter morning, she just kept on. And you know what? Just so that I didn't have to hear her mouth anymore, I went to church. Iris was sitting there, irritated that she'd come. The church music was loud and overwhelming. And I can't tell you what the song was, but during the song, they said, anybody that just needs prayer, just come up. And that just was not me. But I just felt compelled to go. The Reverend Dr. Hannibal Williams, a prominent San Francisco community activist, he prayed for her, and it was like a switch just flipped. I sensed something like a warmth that just started at the top of my head and went to the bottom of my feet. And this is the honest to God truth. I walked out of there, and this is like medically I'm hearing impossible, but it's the truth. I walked out of there that day and never, ever even had, was tempted or, or had any desire for any drugs. No, and, I'm, and this had been years, any drugs, 
I stopped drinking at all for a long time. Now I do have a glass of red wine with my dinner, but that's it. Red wine, alcoholism was gone, the drug addiction was gone, cig uh, um, cigarettes, I just didn't have any. I just felt like I was, I can't explain, it was like a newness, new start. She was 30. She went back to school at San Francisco City College. She was a star student. She got a law degree, met and married her husband. Her journey from high-functioning addict to successful businesswoman, happily married, gave her a belief that everyone deserves a new start. And Antioch, with its polarized climate, was the perfect place to test that out. By now, the tensions were high. The tensions were very high by then. People were afraid of what they perceived as rising crime. Neighborhood groups were forming that policed, and Iris says, often harassed newer black residents. The fear of difference, Iris says, was often directed at black youth hanging out in the mall, on the streets, especially in the subdivision, southeast side of town. Call the police. Those black kids, what are they doing? They were staring at me when I walked by. Everybody was addicted to out here for a long time. You get on doggone the little things you can hear, the radio, police radio, scanners, scanners. All you hear is there's some black kids congregating and police have been called. You don't know later on that the reason they were called is because they were staring at people. And I hate to say this, but there are different, race is a mythology, but there are cultural norms. Those cultural norms, no one denies they clashed here in Antioch. You can go to any city in the doggone world. And guess what? Black folks like to hang out. Our kids, they like to hang. They like to hang. Typically white kids are inside playing video games or whatever. Black kids are hanging. So you would think that the whole neighborhood is overrun by these black people if you just go by perception. Iris was interested in unraveling those perceptions. And to do that, she got involved. I saw an ad in the paper where they were looking for crime prevention commissioners. And you know what, I don't typically, I'm not really the commission board type of person, but for whatever reason, it just sparked my interest. When we return, how Iris took the leadership of a mostly white neighborhood crime prevention group and united them. Support comes from the San Francisco Foundation, proud sponsor of American Suburb. The San Francisco Foundation works with its donors and community partners on a bold equity agenda for greater racial and economic inclusion for everyone in the Bay Area. History tells us that when community leaders, nonprofits, donors, residents, and business partners work together, all Bay Area residents benefit. Learn more at sff.org. Iris applied to organize the block captains in her neighborhood as a crime prevention commissioner. It was part of her campaign to reach out and listen to people. Iris lived in the southeast part of town, the newer cul-de-sac part of town. Neighbors were on edge. The talk of those people was in the air. But Iris wasn't afraid of racism because in some ways she had been raised with racism and had overcome it. She'd learned to think beyond it. And so she believed people could change, even in an instant. She had 
after all. And I called all 45 of the block captains. And because the tension was very, very high, especially here in Southeast, it was like those people are moving out here into our community and they're destroying it. And we've got crime now. We never had crime. And this was always this wonderful, peaceful city. And here they come and blah, blah, blah. She called them one after the other. And here's the catch. She hadn't met them yet. So they didn't know she was black. African-Americans, we have learned that sometimes it is better to use your race-neutral inflection when talking with people on the phone. Yes. So anyway, we are bilingual, trilingual. So anyway, so so there's the girlfriend, there's a community, then there is, yes, anyway. So when I called, people were very, um, and introduced myself and the whole bit, they were very forthcoming with their perceptions about this community. And so uh, one, as a matter of fact, even asked me point blank what I was going to do to deal with those N-words. She says when she heard people say that, she didn't respond. But she did prepare. She asked four African-American community leaders and the town's white police chief to be there to lead what she hoped would be an honest dialogue about discrimination. She invited all 45 of those block captains, all but one of them white, over to her house. So when, we, when they actually got there, it was very, very interesting um, to those who did have that perception um, and, not, and did not realize that I was African-American. I did think it was hilarious when I would, they would ring the doorbell and I'd open the door and they'd go, um, is Iris here? I'm Iris, come on in. The night she chose for this gathering, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Iris has kind of a wicked sense of humor. I, I can set things up so that they can be humorous. And so, yeah, I did. I did have a big uh, hang, a big portrait of uh, Malcolm X <laughs> on the wall in the den. <laughs> so so what were their faces like the, the, when, you, when they saw that? Like, oh my God. But here's the beauty of Antioch. They got there. We were supposed to be done at like six. I think it was like three to six or something like that. Iris says when 10 o'clock rolled around, she had to actively kick people out. No one wanted to leave. I'm telling you, and, and that, they fundamentally changed me because I'm not this perfect person. I have my flaws. Yeah, I grew up, you gotta remember, I grew up in a very nationalist family. The daughter of a Black Panther, communing with white folks in the suburbs who had been nervous about people that looked different. It's almost hard to believe this sort of kumbaya moment of unity, a rapture of unlearning racism. But it's what happened for Iris. She says a lot of her ability to navigate these rough racial waters comes from her upbringing, but maybe not quite in the way you'd expect. White people weren't my enemy in San Francisco. It was my mother who kept telling me that I was never going to be anything, that I talked too much, that I need to shut up that jumped on me one day because she didn't like the blouse I had on. She said, I thought that I was being cute and tried to choke me. Literally, literally. I, I, on her deathbed, I was trying to give her a glass of water with a straw. And she got to hear you, prima donna, and call my sister over to give her the glass of water. It was that kind of relationship. So that's not where I got my, so it wasn't that, oh, I got this proud thing because my mother was a panther, this, that, and the other. She didn't like me. She didn't like me any more than she liked, you know, white folks. (laughs) So... Iris credits her relationship with God, too. He saved her. She says it's his spirit that allowed her to lead with love, 
when hate might have been easier. It wasn't just with white neighbors that Iris forged connections. The county NAACP played a role in several lawsuits against the city of Antioch. They had accused the town and the police department of unfair treatment of African Americans, targeting poorer newcomers who were renting while black. And they've accused the school district of disproportionately suspending and expelling black youth. NAACP leader Willie Mims has no love lost for Antioch police. But when it came to Iris? Yeah, she's good people, you know, uh, but we were on opposing sides. And, uh, you know, she had her position with the city, and, and, and I had mine. But, but we always maintain a, a level of self-respect and, and, and love for each other, based upon, you know, because she knows me. She knows in my heart what I do. And so she respects me for that, you know, even though we totally disagree. Mims said that disagreement was in part based on Iris's fervent support for Antioch police. Iris brought in this guy from Ireland, Colin Craig. He helped facilitate peace and reconciliation talks in Northern Ireland after the war. She brought him in to lead an intensive workshop. The Antioch police chief was there, and to his own surprise, so was Willie Mims. So during those five days, you know, the, the wall that I had built up for these people was slowly coming down. Iris says Willie was skeptical at first. And I remember Willie, I'm going to tell on him again, I remember the first thing that Willie said when, in one of these community forums when I was trying to tell leaders what we were going to do, Willie was like, what's some white man from Ireland going to come here and tell us? So fast forward, we go through this whole thing and there's Jim and Willie and Bracey, we can do this. Jim is Jim Hyde, the Antioch police chief at the time. And Willie, he gives Iris credit for really changing him. She was able to get me to see, you know, the other side and to lower my guard. And not to compromise, but to lower my guard and, and be willing to talk to people about problems. If you don't talk, you know, you're not going to uh, resolve anything. Truth and reconciliation in suburbia. Iris says she couldn't have done any of this without the chief of police at the time, Jim Hyde. For some African Americans, he was a really controversial figure. People were accusing him of being this racist that had been hired to come out here and drive all the black people out because look what he did in Sacramento and all this stuff. Well, immediately when I hear stuff like that, I begin to check it out. When Chief Hyde found out Iris was interested in leading the Crime Prevention Council, he invited her to lunch. She went. She says she was a bit hesitant at first. We went to lunch down at what was then Humphreys, and we were sitting there, and we were sharing stories about um, our own sons and some of the things that they had faced and some of the struggles and what it had meant for us as parents and the whole bit. And um, Jim was saying, he had said to me, he said, you know, there is a perception about youth here that I don't think is real. As he started to talk about his son, honest to God truth, he started to tear up. And that was odd to me because if you see Jim, Jim's this big, tall guy, and he kind of looks kind of, you know, and you would never, so he started to tear up. And then it made me kind of tear up. His son was having some difficulties in school. He was sort of directionless. Iris's son was also having problems. And Iris learned something else about Jim. He and his wife were fostering two young black men. Yeah, we were talking about our kids. You know, we weren't, you know, snot and tears. But definitely, you know, watery eyes. You know, we'd... You know, you hope so much for your kids, and then when things go wrong, it's just that struggle. And every parent deals with that in their own way. And it's just the human element, right? Humans really herd 
they want to be around each other. Now we want to isolate from time to time. But really, to be healthy, we have to be around other human beings. There's a deep well of affection between these two. Not everyone I talk to sees Iris the same way. Some people said she was too close to police, not building bridges, but working for them. Still, for the most part, Iris is universally beloved in Antioch, and she's unapologetically proud of the work her town has done to come together. One of the most miraculous things I have ever seen is I've watched people go through this process of, of, of kind of learning. I think that here in Antioch, we've become a great example of what getting rid of the mythology, feeding people facts, reaching out, refusing to default into apathy or anger or stereotypes can do. This is a town that really actually, for the most part, appreciates and feels comfortable with its police. To tell the story of a town, you talk to the people that make it up. In Antioch, Iris is one of those key people. This place and watching this evolution has not only changed me and made me hopeful, but I think it's changed us all. For Iris, the story of Antioch, like her own story, is a story of redemption. And like her own life, it's a story of overcoming hate and learning to love. Next time on American Suburb. Police brutality, use of force. Does it happen a lot? A violent arrest in the East Bay has some claiming police brutality. Sometimes things happen and the media immediately spins it. And the officers were saying, shut the F up, shut the F up and go in the house. I tried to tap his side, be like, you know, I'm, you know, I can't breathe. You know, I'm going, I'm going under. And he just held on until I actually went unconscious. When I saw my son, he grasped up like he was taking a last breath and Jupiter's blood just flew out of his mouth and he went back out. That's the perspective that a lot of law enforcement has is we agree black lives matter, but all lives matter. Certainly the demographic change has affected the quality of policing. When you try to say something, you are by yourself out here. I'm Sandhya Dirks. And I'm Devin Kadayama. You've been listening to American Suburb. We get support from the San Francisco Foundation, and American Suburb was edited by Julia McAvoy. Executive producers are Holly Kernan and Ethan Lindsay. And if you like American Suburb, subscribe to us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. 
I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!